0: Early in this year on Tuesday of January 3rd, the New York Times reported a pounding stretch of rain, wind, and snow continuing its destructive path east through the Midwestern and southern states, bringing heavy rain and snow to much of the central United States and tornadoes to the south after drenching California over the weekend. As it moved further east, the so-called multi-hazard storm was expected to dump a mixture of snow and freezing rain in northern New England by Thursday. The effects of this storm included zero visibility, road closure, multiple car and truck collisions, numerous injuries, power outages, deaths, road closures, flight cancellations, destructions of homes, Destruction of homes and businesses and on and on. And the full impact probably won't be known for quite some time. A multi-hazard storm. Well, Paul, as we have been going through 2 Timothy, we're seeing, remember the context from where Paul is writing from. This is his last letter. This is the last thing that he will communicate that we know of for the rest of his life. He is awaiting imminent execution, probably in this marmotan prison, In Rome, a 30-foot diameter circular stone subterranean cell where they just basically dumped the men in through a manhole-sized opening at the top and left them there until they decided to execute them. Some of them would die in there. There's hardly any light throughout that whole place. And here is Paul, and he's writing this last testament to Timothy. Timothy, this is what I want you to know. These are the last things I'm saying. And Timothy is caught in what I would call a multi-hazard spiritual storm. It's raging through Ephesus and it's exacting a tragic toll on the church in its path. Turn with me there in 2 Timothy chapter 3 to verse 1 where Phil preached this last week as he explained to us the situation, these perilous times. Paul writes, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemous, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. And from such people turn away. For of this sort are those who creep into households. And make captives of gullible women. Loaded down with sins led away by various lusts. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now as James and Jambres resisted Moses. So did those also resist the truth. Men of corrupt minds. Disapproved concerning the faith. But they will progress no further. For their folly will be manifest to all as theirs also was. Paul describes the hazard of that storm that is raging there in Ephesus. These threaten the very existence of the church, the small church that has begun to grow there. But Paul does not leave Timothy simply with a terrible spiritual forecast. He just doesn't tell him how bad this is going to be. He provides him with an anchor. Now what is an anchor? A dictionary definition says an anchor is a heavy metal object usually shaped like a cross with curved arms on strong rope or chain that is dropped from a boat into the water to prevent that boat from moving away. In a figurative sense it says an anchor is that which gives stability or security, that on which we place dependence for safety. Paul actually describes the use of ship anchors in Acts chapter 27. Verse 29, he says, Then fearing, he's on this ship, and they're in this midst of this storm, he says, Fearing lest we should run aground on the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Those anchors to hold them fast so they wouldn't crash into the shores and be splintered and lost. The writer of Hebrews depicts the danger of us spiritually floating off like a ship from its harbor. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 1 it says, Therefore we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. And then a little later in that same book he describes an anchor. But this is an anchor for our soul. In Hebrews 6.19 he says, This hope we have as an anchor of the soul. It is both sure and steadfast. In the midst of these multi-hazard storms, Paul now reminds Timothy of the anchor he must hold tightly to. Think of this. What kind of storms are looming, perhaps even raging, in your own life? Are you praying for an anchor? Seeking an anchor somewhere? Look at the multi-hazard storm facing our families. You know, just one look, one, one glance on social media or on the news and, and these things are coming at us from every point on the globe. At everything from legislation to medical to education to legal. Uh, everything is crumbling. We are in the midst of a multi-hazard storm. In chapter 3 of Second Timothy is that first century Galatia? Or is that 21st century Kansas? 2 Timothy 3. Let me read that again. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful and holy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness but denying its power. How do we overcome that kind of fierce opposition? How do we not become like them? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and we need you. Lord, the very description of these things in your word in in this chapter alone are things we, we see clearly and identify with as pummeling our own lives, our own families, our church Lord, we need you. We need you so badly. So we ask you, Father, please to reveal yourself to us through your word this morning. Please show us who you are. Please overcome my weaknesses and and inabilities and and speak to us as our God and our King. And Lord, lead us so that our lives will bring great glory and honor to you. in the brief time you've given us on this earth that we will spend it for the glory of Jesus Christ. Show us how to endure, how to suffer, and be faithful. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Verse 10 says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance. We begin here with the anchor of a life witness. An anchor of life witness. And the first one is the anchor of discipling. He begins here with, but you. And and that is the emphatic part of that verse. But you, Timothy, the men of the times, they go that way, as we were taught last week. This is where they will be going, but Timothy, you are not one of them. And neither are you, brothers and sisters. We are not of them. Timothy, it says, carefully followed. It's the word parakalutheo, and it's a two-part word. It's a compound word. Paran means to be near or beside. And akalutheo means to accompany or be along the same path. It, it's like the picture of a father walking with his son, holding his son's hand as they walk down through a path together closely. It reminded me of some of the old movies, the more war movies, where you'd see two men full of all their combat gear, going through the jungle, looking on each other's side, trying to anticipate anything that could happen, looking after each other, eating together in in a foxhole, Uh, standing up and crawling up the sides of the mountain together, walking together, enduring things together. And that's really what Paul and Timothy did. Timothy spent most of his adult life right at the side of this man Paul. As they spread the gospel throughout Asia Minor and throughout the Mediterranean. Under much opposition, under much difficulty, with great rejoicing, much accomplishment. They were there constantly together. William Barclay says it means to follow a person physically. To stick by him through thick and thin, to be by his side in fair weather and in foul. It means to follow a person mentally to attend diligently to his teaching and fully to understand the meaning and the significance of what he says. And it means to follow a person spiritually. Not only to understand what he says, but also to carry out his ideas and to be the kind of person that he wishes us to be. That is why Paul That is why Paul could write to a church in the city of Corinth and say to them, For this reason I have sent Timothy to you, who is my beloved and faithful son in the Lord, He will remind you of my ways in Christ as I teach everywhere in every church. Calvin described Timothy, he said, He is not an ignorant and untaught soldier because Paul carried him through a long course of training. Now we come to nine specific qualities that Paul lays out to which Timothy must hold fast. Timothy, Timothy, you have proven yourselves in these same qualities that I have in my life, said Paul. Don't let go, you have them. You are equipped to face these battles. You know, first of all, my doctrine, what I teach. Timothy knew what Paul had taught these many years, and he is prepared and he is commanded to teach the same. Remember in 2 Timothy 2, verse 2, And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men, Who will also be able to teach others. Timothy was the next link in this generational discipling. Timothy you've got it. You know me. Now bring it to these men. And these men will bring it to others. 2 Timothy 4 verse 2. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. Why? He says... For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers. And they will turn their ears away from the truth. And they will be turned aside to fables. Timothy, you've got to go for it. You've got to be preaching. You've got to be at every season. Be ready because the tendency will be for people to drift away. To heap up for themselves other teachers that will please what their flesh wants. Timothy. You've got to be going. And then you know my manner of life, my conduct. Timothy knew that what Paul preached, he practiced. What he taught, he lived. It's like him saying to Timothy, I am not and don't you be a hypocrite. Throughout the 1st Timothy and 2nd Timothy, probably bit tall, probably Paul's biggest concern, biggest critique, was the hypocrisy of these false teachers. They were gross hypocrites, and he even goes on to say they don't even have any idea what they're really talking about. Don't let that be you, Timothy. You know my conduct. Thirdly, purpose. Timothy, you know why I live the way I do. You know my passion. Paul's great passions, first of all, I would say it was to know Christ deeply. To know Him more and more. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he says that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering, being conformed to His death. Paul wanted to know his Savior, Jesus Christ. But secondly, he wanted to make Christ known everywhere he possibly could. And especially, especially where the gospel had never been preached. Timothy, you know, you know what makes me go. Acts 20, verses 18 through 21. Paul said to the earlier elders of the church in Ephesus, You know from the first day that I came to Asia, in what manner I always lived among you. Serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews. How I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly from house to house. Testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance towards God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And Timothy, you know my faith. I believe we're talking here about the content and the passion. The content of Paul's faith is described briefly in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember where he wrote there. He says that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. That in a nutshell was the message of Paul. He would expound on that certainly. But that's what he lived and breathed, those truths. But not only the content of his faith that Timothy knew. No, he knew he had such a passion for this. He trusted in this fully, completely. That this was truth. And this made the difference in his life. In 1 Corinthians 15, 3-4. Excuse me. I read that one, didn't I? Timothy also knew that Paul was faithful. Not only did he have faith. But he was a faithful man. And some interpreters have said that's what Paul is getting at here. That I was always faithful, Timothy. You be faithful. Don't give in. Don't let go. Don't swerve as those false teachers we read about swerving off the main track. Timothy, don't let that happen. And then, Timothy, you know my long suffering. And this is interesting it's the Greek word, makrothumia. And it means that Paul endured long. But this has nothing to do with difficult circumstances or hardships. This is long-suffering and enduring with people, with men and women in the church, with the lost that he proclaimed the gospel to. Paul was a patient man with people. Sometimes we think of Paul as a hard-driving, spiritual marine sergeant, barking and yelling orders at his subordinates. Now, I don't think Paul was a softy by any means. But listen to these tender, loving words that he wrote. And some of these were to people who were actually a big problem in the church. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I implore you, Odia, and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companions, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. You had two women that were at odds at each other and it was causing a problem. It was a weakness in that church and, and Paul says, guys, please come and help these women. Help them draw back together as sisters. Bring them back in so the church can be as effective as it once was. These women worked. They served. They were in the gospel ministry with me. Help them. In Philippians chapter 1, Verse 3, Paul writes, I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making requests for you all with joy. All, 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 all. Paul loved these people. And he prayed for them constantly, for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will complete it in the day of Jesus Christ. Paul was patient with people. He knew that God would be the one who must do the work. He would teach. He would be faithful to doctrine. But it was God who must work, and he loved these folks. Long-suffering is vital. Husbands and wives, parents, brothers and sisters, long-suffering is vital for true Christ-like ministry to grow and reproduce the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. If those are going to be a part of our lives, of our church, of our family, we must demonstrate long-suffering. Long-suffering. Husbands, suffer long with your wife. Lay your life down for her. Wives, suffer long with those guys. Sometimes we're very dense. Sometimes we're, we're hard. Be patient with us. Men, give your wives time. Give them time. Listen, listen, listen. Be long-suffering. Fathers and mothers, be patient with those little ones. Correct them, train them, discipline them. But do it with an act of patience. And, And I just will put a plug in. Come Wednesday night if you want to learn how to do that better. It's been a good instruction on that. Show them patience and love. Siblings, when I pray for your families, that's one of the things I pray, that you will love each other. Brothers and sisters, that you guys will grow in your love for each other and your mom and dad. Show patience to each other. Be long-suffering. Co-workers, some of them are taking advantage of you. Some of them look down upon you. Show them patience and long-suffering. Your boss, show him the same thing. The person you may not want to sit with, At the fellowship sack lunch, show them long suffering and love them. This stuff is really practical. It is one way to demonstrate the next quality, and look at that love, agapao. It's a it's a love that is not an emotional attraction. It's not an affection you have with those you like to be with. It's almost the opposite. It is the same word for love describing how God loves sinners. It is a love of intention that seeks the best for the one you are loving. This is a love that is unconditional. It loves when it is not loved. It chooses to love when love is the least likely response. It is love that is empowered by God's love. 1 John Chapter 4, verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. John 15, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than one laid down his life for his friends. The next quality, perseverance. And this is another Greek word. I hope I'm saying these somewhat accurately. Hupomone. And it means endurance, this time under difficult circumstances. Hardships. Afflictions. And it literally means to bear up under a weight. You want to have this perseverance, this endurance under difficult times. Hebrews 10 verse 36 says, For you have need of endurance. So that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. We need that endurance. Paul has shown that endurance over and over again. Now Paul demonstrates both long suffering with people and perseverance and affliction in an amazing account. Please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. You see, Timothy knew all of this stuff that was going on in Paul's life. He'd seen some of it, some of it he had been told. And I thought about, you know, we've shared some issues that we've gone through sometimes in gospel ministry that to us were exciting or maybe difficult and maybe being beaten or spit upon or had a gun to our head or something like this. But when you read this list, I got to thinking, my things are like kindergarten compared to the Ph.D. of suffering and affliction that Paul had. This is an amazing list. And what's amazing is this man just goes back for more. Because he loves his Savior. Verse 23, I believe. Halfway through it says, I speak as a fool. I am more. In labors, more abundant. In stripes, that doesn't mean the style of his clothing. That meant the whip marks that were across his back. More abundant or above measure. In prisons, more frequently. In deaths, often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Five times. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. What a list. Very few of us have experienced even one or two of those things. And Paul, that that was his life. Paul then looks back in verse 11 and he he kind of reflects back on the history of his ministry. Look at that verse. Verse 11 says, Persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured. This is where it all began. These are the roots of Paul's ministry. This was his very first missionary journey. And all these cities he's mentioned are in the Roman province of Galatia. In fact, Lystra, which he mentions, is Timothy's own hometown, likely where he met Timothy and brought him on board as part of his ministry. Let's start in Acts chapter 13. Turn to Acts chapter 13. Verse 14, But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch and Pisidia, and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. And this was a common practice within the synagogue to allow visiting rabbis to speak. And it says then in verse 16, Paul stood up and motioning with his hand said, Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. And then he began to preach the history of God's work. He preached the history of God's work from Egypt through the Exodus Through conquering the promised land, the history of judges, the kings, he arrives with King David, and from David then he kind of moves straight on up to the Messiah who came from the line of David. Paul's preaching then narrows, He, he speaks of Christ's godly perfect life, his unjust prosecution, his condemnation, his execution, and then his consummate victory in being raised from the dead. And why? All of this was to show to the Jewish audience that the fulfillment of prophecy confirmed that this Jesus Christ whom they had put to death was the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah. The Old Testament proves that. In Acts 13.38 it says, Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins through Jesus Christ. You may have forgiveness of sins, verse 39, and by Him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. You were trapped, you were destined and sentenced to hell for eternity. You could never meet the law of Moses. What great news, this is the good news. You can now, because this man Jesus Christ was the one who came to take us there. Would you not have been amazed to hear that message? I would love to hear a video of that and watch that just to see Paul as he preached. There were many open hearts, thrilled with the message of hope, and new abundant life in Christ. But there was also a warning. Paul goes on to say, Beware therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, the one were to declare it to you. The good news and the bad news. And the response, the response was mixed. There were many open hearts, but there were others here. Look at verse 42. So when the Jews went out of the synagogue, the Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. And now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But not everyone was so convinced. Verse 45, But when the Jews saw the multitude, they were filled with envy. And contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul. Then Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, then judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, I have set you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be for salvation to the ends of the world. Now when the Gentiles heard this, they were glad and glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout all the regions. But the Jews stirred up the devout and prominent women and the chief men of the city. They raised up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and expelled them from their region. Things went fantastically. And then persecution occurred. Suffering. And they still go fantastically. Look at Romans, or excuse me, Acts chapter 14 verse 1. Now we get to Iconium. Now it happened in Iconium that they went together to the synagogue of the Jews, and so spoke that a great multitude, both of the Jews and of the Greeks, believed. But the unbelieving Jews stirred up the Gentiles and poisoned their minds against the brethren. Therefore they stayed there a long time, speaking boldly in the Lord, who was bearing witness to the word of his grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. But the multitude of the city was divided. Part sided with the Jews and part with the apostles. And when a violent attempt was made by both the Gentiles and the Jews with their rulers to abuse and stone them, they became aware of it and fled to Lystra and Derbe, cities of Ly- 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 Lycaonia. So, that's Iconium. The other city, Lystra. Beginning with verse 8. And in Lystra, a certain man without strength in his feet was sitting a cripple from his mother's womb, who had never walked. This man heard Paul speaking. Paul, observing him intently and seeing that he had faith to be healed, said with a loud voice, Stand up straight on your feet. And he leaped and walked. And now when the people saw what Paul had done, they raised their voices, saying, in Lycaonian language, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. Then the priest of Zeus, whose temple was in front of their cities, brought oxen and garlands to the gate, intending to sacrifice with the multitudes. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard this, they tore their clothes and ran in among the multitude, crying and saying, Men, why are you doing these things? We also are men with the same nature as you and preach to you that you should turn from these useless things to the living God who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, who in bygone generations allowed all nations to walk in their own ways. Nevertheless, he did not leave himself without witness, in that he did good, gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. And with these sayings, they could scarcely restrain the multitude from sacrificing to them. It was a wild and chaotic scene. And these people had gathered to offer sacrifices and place laurels upon uh, upon Barnabas and Paul, uh, it was like Paul and Barnabas could have done no wrong in their sight. And how long did that last? Not very long. The wild popularity disintegrated in really one verse. Look at verse 19. Then Jews from Antioch and Iconium came there, and, having persuaded the multitudes, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city. Supposing him to be dead. Supposing him to be dead. But watch. Watch this faithful undaunted soldier of Christ. He's laying crumpled, lifeless at the foot of this wall outside the city. They think he's dead. However, verse twenty, when the disciples gathered around him, he rose up and then he went into the city. And the next day he departed from Barnabas from with Barnabas to Derby and I look at that and I think what a purpose this is so amazing this man was in there he was I can't imagine what stoning is like but they'd stoned him enough to where they thought he was completely dead they picked him up and carried him laid that body at the base of that wall and went back to do their thing and Paul by the spirit of God was revived came back stood up and he didn't say boy that was a close call let's get out of here He said, no, I'm going back in that city. And I'm going to preach in that city. And he did. He went back. He was undaunted. He could not be stopped. And then it says he went on to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. He went back through all those cities that he'd been through before. And he says, we must, through many tribulations, enter the kingdom of God. The next anchor, the anchor of deliverance. Verse 11b. It says, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Praise the Lord that Paul was not exempted or protected from, prosec- from persecution and suffering. He didn't escape them. He went right through the mouth of the lion and God pulled him out every time. Every time he had such confidence. Suffering produced faith and character by which Paul brought praise, honor, and glory to Jesus Christ. There was nothing that would have accomplished The praise and honor that He brought to Jesus like the suffering that He went through. Peter describes this great refining process in 1 Peter 1.7 That the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We claim many things and it's so easy. But where is our faith really? We will know When we are tried by fire, it will be shown to be what God intended. He will enable us to have a faith that grows, that is purified, like gold tried seven times in the furnace. And it came out pure and beautiful and valuable. So is our faith. Don't shrink back from persecutions. Don't shrink back from suffering. Don't avoid it. You see, with experiences such as these, Paul then confidently proclaims later in 2 Timothy 4, And the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for His heavenly kingdom. To Him be glory forever and ever. Amen. With the anchor of deliverance in mind, then Paul gives us the anchor, which is a promise that most of us don't pursue after. It is the anchor of persecution. Persecution. The anchor of persecution. In verse 12 it says, Yes, and all who are desired to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Now the word will is not actually in the text. But the word dioko there is an indicative mood. And it means that this is a statement of fact. There's no way around it. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It doesn't tell us what type of persecution. But it says we will suffer persecution. This statement here has four parts. Yes, it says a confirmation. Yes. Then it says all, completely comprehensive. But then it narrows it down. Who desire to live godly. Now who is that? These are the ones who are willing to sacrifice. Those who are willing to walk in obedience. To deny the flesh. To be fully committed. And then it says, in Christ Jesus. That is the key. Our lives in totality as mothers, as wives, as husbands, as fathers, as workers, as leaders, as servants. Totality is to be lived godly in Christ Jesus. Live like Jesus did, requesting, bless, or requesting, pleading with God to give you the grace to be His people. The statement... It's made there, and then it says at the end that all of our life is to be lived godly, Christ like in Christ Jesus for a reward. And that reward is the suffering of persecution. Now, you may think that's silly or that's crazy to say that. But suffering persecution is a reward. There are certainly dozens of ways to avoid persecution compromise, denial of Christ, apathy in serving Christ. Fear to speak of Christ. But those who truly desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, they will have the honor of suffering persecution for their king. Hendrickson wrote, In the midst of contradictions coming from every side, they refuse either to stop their ears or to cringe and compromise. Instead, they face the foe and challenge him to combat. They go right ahead, boldly defending the faith against every attack and courageously assaulting the fortress of unbelief. The result is persecution, at times very bitter. There was a famous old commercial that used to begin with this little slogan, you only go around once in life, you got to grab all the gusto you can get. What an empty, self-serving Temporary life goal. The first part is true. You only go around once in life. That's important to remember. What will you do with this? You only go around once in life. But how much greater the reward to pursue godly living in Christ Jesus and then to be given the high honor to suffer persecution in the name of your Savior and King. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17, Beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in your synagogues. You will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Your suffering is a testimony to those around you. John 15, 20. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Your persecution will simply be Following the example of your Savior John sixteen thirty three, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. When you are in the midst of those persecutions, don't forget that. Jesus has overcome the world. Peter wrote in first Peter four, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fire trial, fiery trial, which is to try you. As though some strange thing happened to you. But rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's suffering. That when his glory is revealed. You may also be glad with exceeding joy. We will be glorified with Christ. If we also suffer with him. It says in the book of Romans. Join with Christ. And our response to suffering persecution. Was mapped out by Jesus also in Matthew 5. Verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets that were before you. You're going through what our prophet patriarchs went through before we did. We're following in their steps and our reward is great. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. And then Paul says in First Thessalonians 3, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. From when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. I'm telling you that too. And perhaps that will come true. Don't be moved by these things. Know that God will see you through and He has brought them to you. And it says then in verse 13 that things will get worse. There are rising storms on the horizon. Rising storms, verse 13. But evil men and imposters will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. These are those that were written of in 2 Timothy chapter 2. They have been taken captive by the devil to do his will. 2 Timothy 3, earlier we read, These men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. These are opponents of truth and they will grow worse in every respect into this bottomless pit of evil. There is no end to the depravity to which they will sink. And what is their primary tool? It's deception. Their primary tool is deception. And pitifully, it says, they will continue deceived while they too are being deceived by their father, the devil, known as the father of deception or lies. Now we, we see that graphically today. That little phrase is so true. We see it horrifically in our own society's deception. And it's a deception, I'll, I'll just give out one example, concerning the God-ordained gift of sexual relationship. It's designed as a picture of God's love for His church. It's the oneness and joy of a man and woman in marriage and the procreation of children. But it has been gradually perverted to homosexuality, lesbianism, transsexuality, pedophilia, and worse. The rights and practices of these perversions of God's blessed gift, they are deceptively touted as healthy and progressive. They are touted as healthy and progressive, even though the rates of disease, depression, suicide, abortion, abuse, neglect, and violence continue to grow. Evil men and women are growing worse and worse. They are deceiving, And they are being deceived. And it is a tragic tragedy for everyone involved. And it's like an invisible social spider web that will not let go of its prey. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can set anyone free. And He can do that in those situations. But that's the world in which we live. The last two verses now are the anchor basics. What are the basic things about the anchor? Where is this anchor? Verse 14 says, You must continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. The anchor is located in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. That's where this anchor is. Guthrie said, It's against such a background of militant error, the Christian leader must stand firm on what they know of the truth like a rock resisting the increasing fury of the waves. This word whom, whom you have heard, is a plural pronoun. And that tells us that Timothy has had more than just Paul in his life, or more than just his mother and his grandmother. He's had multiple people that have come alongside him and have spoken the truth of God to him. Paul was clearly the most influential teacher. But this is also likely inclusive of the important influence of his mother Eunice, and his grandmother Lois. Remember when Timothy, when Paul wrote of them in 2 Timothy verse 1, he says, When I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and their mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Parents, hold fast to that. Even if you're a single parent, pour the scriptures upon your child. Teach them as you lie down, as you get up, as you walk along the path. Make the scriptures a very real part of your life. Help them to understand, to interpret, to apply the word of God to their lives. And perhaps you'll see a Timothy. The anchor is in the things which you have learned and been assured of, but what is that anchor? Verse 15. And that from childhood you have known the holy scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith. The anchor, in a sense, is the sacred writings. It is the Holy Scripture. For survival in multi-hazard spiritual storms, you've got to know God's Word. You must know God's Word. How from infancy or young childhood, you see in the Jewish culture, they would begin to teach the children the Law and the Prophets at the age of five. And they would continue to do basically two things in their instruction. One was the children were to memorize the Scriptures. So I'm sure Timothy had memorized much of the Old Testament. And secondly, they would do a question and answer type of thing. It's what we would call a catechism. They would ask them specific questions and the children would recite back to them scriptural responses that were effective to the question that was being asked. And I will have to admit, we did not have a catechism going in our family as my children grew up. I wish we would have now. We did a lot of scripture memory. I know some of you are doing both. And I encourage you as parents, do both. Find one of the catechisms that are out there. Have your children memorize Scripture. Have them learn how to respond with Scriptural responses. That would have been Timothy's upbringing. And Timothy would have been able to affirm what it was said in Psalm 71, verse 17. The psalmist read, O God, You have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare Your wondrous works. To survive the multi-hazard storms, you must know the Word of God, and you must know the power of God's Word. Knowing the Holy Scriptures, does not save. The Pharisees knew it quite well, forward and backwards it is rumored. But many of them were not saved. Galatians chapter 3 verse 24 says therefore the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. John 5 verse 37 and the father himself who sent me has testified of me you have neither heard of his heard his voice at any time nor seen his form But you do not have his word abiding in you, because him whom he sent, him you do not believe. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. They had the scriptures, they knew them well, but they didn't have the Christ. Jesus himself validated who he was and what he did by the use of the same Old Testaments that Timothy had. Luke chapter 24, you have two men. They're returning from Jerusalem back to uh, Emmaus. One of them's name is Cleopas. And this stranger comes up beside them as they're walking along and they begin to have a conversation. This is at a point when the resurrection is starting to be rumored, it's starting to surface. And Cleopas told this unknown stranger, he said, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb And they found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. Then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? And beginning at Moses and all the prophets, Jesus expounded to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Later he said the same thing to the disciples. He said, These are the words which I spoke to you while I was still with you. That all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. And then it says that Jesus opened their understanding that they might comprehend the scriptures. It was all there. And then he said to them, thus it is written and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day. And the repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. The Old Testament was sufficient to teach and bring the awareness of who Christ would be. And yet they rejected him over and over again. Timothy had been thoroughly immersed in this scripture from infancy. And that had prepared for him to believe in the anchor. The anchor himself, finally. Who is the anchor? Verse 15. Which is in Christ Jesus. A believer of Christ must live godly in Christ Jesus. Likewise, the wisdom of salvation and faith leads to the very anchor himself who is Christ Jesus. Most of you have heard the gospel many of times. We know that because God is holy and righteous, He is perfect and pure, and He has a wrath against sin, and He is long-suffering and merciful and gracious. And yet sin will not be brought into His presence. No man can enter into the presence of God. God has turned His face away from us because of our sin. He will not listen because of our iniquities. So man is dead, destined for condemnation with no hope. Man, it says, have all sinned. And the earnings of that sin, the wages of that sin is death. And His condemnation is just. And a holy God looks down upon the sins of men and He does something. He brings a mediator into our lives, His own Son. It's said that that mediator is like a referee in some ways who can touch man because he is man and at the same time touch God because he is God and bring the two together. And that mediator made that possible because He took upon Himself when He went on that cross. He took upon Himself the filth and the sin and the rebellion of my life and He paid the eternal price for me on that cross. And He has done that for everyone who will trust in Him. And He didn't stay in that grave upon paying that price. The fact that He was God in the flesh and the fact that that payment was sufficient and full for the sins that Savior rose from the dead. Death could not hold him. He raised him up with power and victory. And he reigns at the right hand of the Father. That's the gospel. You can know that gospel if you will repent of sin and turn and follow Christ. There are no excuses. You will not be able to stand before God when it says on that day that all are appointed to stand before him in judgment unless you are there with the blood of Christ. And you have been set free by His payment. And He has placed His righteousness upon you. It's, it's the most amazing. Uh, it's, it's the worst deal you can think of if you were Jesus. But it's a win-win on every side for us. He took our sin and He gave us His righteousness. And then He suffered for our sin. He just didn't take it and package it up and throw it in a basket spiritually in some way. He suffered the pain and the agony that we would suffer for eternity in our place. What a Savior that we have. And Paul, perhaps he only had a few days left. Maybe a few weeks. We don't know. But that is still his clarion call. Timothy, don't back off. Don't back down. Endure suffering. Be faithful. Love people. Show them patience. Be consistent. Don't be a hypocrite. Live godly in Christ Jesus. Walk with me. The world needs this message, and the world needs this message from us. We are so comfortable. Walk out of that. Walk wherever Jesus would point you, faithfully, knowing that He will care for you and He will use you for His glory. I spoke with someone just yesterday in closing here that we talked about the gospel, and they were quick to say, "Well, we have to be careful. You know, we can't make anybody believe, and we don't want to push it too hard." And, and I agree with that to a very great de- degree. but there was a point in my life several years ago in trying to learn more about sharing the gospel that I kept thinking, well, does, is it an offer, or is it a command? And, and if God is sovereign and, and He dictates these things, where am I at in this thing? And so I asked the Lord, and, I, and probably many of you knew this long ago, but He brought me to the verse in 1 John 3:23. It says... For this is the command of God that you believe on His Son, Jesus Christ and love one another as He gave command. It is very much a command that God has commanded that you believe and if you're sitting there saying it doesn't sound good enough or I'm not ready or the cost is too great you are not given that option. You're commanded to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 10, verse 15 through 16, it says, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. And then it goes on to say, But they have not all obeyed the gospel. They have not all all obeyed that command. I pray that anyone here who has resisted that command will cry out to God and repent and follow Him. This account of Paul speaking from the dungeon, urging Timothy on, he's not asking for any kind of pity, self-pity, or uh, can you come around a little bit more often, or can you send me this at this point? No, he's saying, Timothy, go forth. And that's what I want to tell you. Hold nothing back. Go forward with the gospel. Make it known. Everywhere that you possibly can. In the small groups that look a little intimidating, try to enter in and share Christ. There was a group uh, Friday night and there were like five or six motorcycles parked by Quick Trip. And I walked by them and kept my tracks in my pocket and got in the car and then thought, you coward. And uh, I prayed and I walked back and stepped up to those guys and said, hey, may I offer you this? that talks about Jesus Christ and eternal life. And uh, one of those guys took that tract and we began to talk and it wasn't a long conversation but he was a nice guy (laughs) and the others took tracts and one of them stuck it in his pocket I don't know what will happen with that but there wasn't anything to fear for I was on my master's mission and that's where you are speak to your your brother-in-law speak to your parents speak to your neighbor and I'm saying that to myself too hold nothing back as the scriptures say, the night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I have spoken probably far too many words, Lord, but I pray that you will sift through and bring your truth to our hearts and you will give us understanding of this word that we will be able to see each of these characteristics grow in our own lives and that we will be men and women of God, young and old, that are ready to be your soldiers on the battlefield. Lord, rip that that fear out of our our hearts, Lord. Give us the joy and the confidence of Christ. Give us an attraction to the things of God, even an attraction to the suffering and the persecutions that will come for your glory and your honor. Oh, Lord God, be glorified through the men and women of this body. Lord, I, I pray that we will go forth from here and Christ will be exalted. In your name we pray, amen.